Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to heaven. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I have previously been referred to as a cracking bloke. And I am Ash Versus, and under Scottish law, Luke and I are now boyfriend and girlfriend. This ep- It's about time. This I, don't, episode- <laughs> I don't write the laws, Luke. I don't write the laws. This episode aired on the 28th of September 1995, and there's no change in any of the charts. Primal Rage is all the rage on the console market, Shaggy is top of the music charts with Mr. Bombastic, and Houston still has that pesky problem with Apollo 13. As an update, uh, on last week's episode, I said I was going to watch, tr- try and watch Apollo 13 before it runs out of our time on the podcast. We've got it for like another two weeks, I think. Um, I still haven't watched it. However... It is on Netflix. And as I mentioned to you on text message the other day, I am now sleeping in a different room to my wife and child because we're training the kid to not be used to us both being in the same room. Also, her sleep pattern is going through sleep regression has disturbed all of our sleeping patterns. So I have to drive to London. I'm now sleeping in my own room and it's a room with a TV and it's a room that I can connect my laptop to, which means... I might actually, I might even watch it tonight. So you are sleeping in a separate room in order to get more sleep. So instead, you're going to sit up and watch movies. Oh yeah, I watched Ghostbusters Afterlife the other day. I had a G&T in bed. I watched, I finished watching The Eternals and that film's four hours long. It feels even longer though. <laughs> Doesn't it just fucking hell? It's well boring. We are going to have to have serious Ghostbusters Afterlife discussions at some point. Maybe that's next month's Patreon episode. Maybe maybe that's what <laughs> that's what the Patreons want. They want us to nerd the fuck out about Ghostbusters Afterlife. In fairness, they've been waiting for us to do that since October. 
I mean, there'd be, well, what, October 2020? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I too, I tell you what, let's both try and do it. Let's both try and do that before we run out of Apollo 13 time. Let's both try and rewatch it because it is a very, very good film. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really excited to rewatch it. Like I looked it up on Netflix and that image there where you've got Tom Hanks and you've got Bill Paxton. And I was like, yeah, of course I'm in. The Paxton's there. And Tom Hanks, much better than one of his sons. I mean, you know, he can't be completely perfect. He has to have some follies and all his follies went into a child. So we're going to park our discussion on Apollo 13 there. And we've already talked about Shaggy's Mr. Bombastic. A little bit of TV news for you, though. One of which I think you'll be massively into. The other one, maybe not so much. 24th of September, the BBC's massively popular adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice debuts on BBC One with a six-part serial finishing on the 29th of October. You are cordially invited to attend. The date, Sunday, the 24th of September. The time, nine o'clock. And the place, BBC One. An invitation to Pride and Prejudice. That's one bit of news. The more interesting one, certainly for me, September 28th, Star Trek Deep Space Nine makes its debut on BBC Two with the feature-length episode Emissary. In 45 minutes, the amazing story of the glacier climbers in They Who Dare. First on BBC Two, Sinister Suspicions in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It took me a while to get into Deep Space Nine. Like, I like it now, but I I don't know. There were two space station shows, really. There was Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. And I know you want to do the space line, but I was a Babylon 5 person. Babylon 5's a big pile of shit. Get out! Yay! However, I have gone back and revisited it, and it does have some amazing characters, some brilliant story arcs. Some of the uh, the kind of underutilised characters from Star Trek Next Generation went over there to find a new lease of life. Or were moved over there to bolster ratings, depending on how you look at it. But either way, Chief O'Brien and Worf, they got their fair dues over there. You said that it took you a little while. I'm curious, to how long was it? What, before I got into Deep Space Nine? Before you got into Deep Space Nine. Oh, at least 15 years. Okay, I, I'm, I'm glad then, because we're on the same sort of boat, because I was in a, a similar position to you. I was at university, and a friend of mine there was like, oh man, Deep Space Nine is well better than TNG. And I was like, what? <laughs> that was the face I pulled. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure I can fully agree with that. And even then, I really didn't give it much of the time of day. And it wasn't until, I would say, three, four years ago that I watched it on Netflix. And I was like, I've given this a, I've given this short change, actually. It's pretty good. I think, to me, Star Trek, I mean, the key is the name, Shrek. Yeah. And for a good chunk of time, particularly at the beginning, Deep Space Nine was the opposite of trek it was stationary you know star stationary it, mm. it didn't go anywhere i mean sure they Starshonary. got the run about you know they they, they kind of got they got their own little vehicle and they went through the wormhole and all that stuff and that that was cool but yeah i don't know i just i fell on the babylon 5 side of things and there's all sorts of interesting stories if you look at the uh some of the books that have been written all the oral histories for star trek there's some very interesting timeline stuff to do with Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, wherein hmm, pitches had already been made for Babylon 5, and then suddenly Deep Space Nine appeared. Mm-hmm. It could be a coincidence. As is often the case in Hollywood, it probably isn't. Yeah, even if the showrunners were not aware. Because that's the thing, you get a room full of executives and maybe they pitch one thing and the executives have already seen the pitch for Babylon 5. 
So they just kind of like cherry pick some ideas and seed them. And then before you know it, you're showrunners of a carbon copy-ish. Have we got anything going on in the magazines before we dive into the show? Well, we've got a lovely new cover all centred on Mortal Kombat 3. There it is. We've got so much MK3 chat coming up in the next few episodes. We've got two challenges, I think actually three challenges on it or something ridiculous like that. Which is amazing because spoilers for episode three, they also dunk on Mortal Kombat quite a lot. Yeah. But this one, there's the exclusive review of the Mega Drive and snares. There's also the chance to win a Mortal Kombat 3 arcade machine. Always loved those competitions to win an arcade cabinet. Because I always, I mean, in my old house when I was a kid, there'd have been no room to put one. And in fact, actually, every house I've moved into since, there'd probably be even less room to put one. But that didn't stop me thinking like, oh, though, if I had an arcade cabinet, that'd be the dream. What, what about now? I mean, you've got your kind of little man cave den there. I don't know if this room, this is also supposed to be a shared office space with my wife, so I don't think she'd fully appreciate a, uh, a Mortal Kombat 3 arcade machine in here. More Street Fighter? You, maybe, yeah, she was more of a Street Fighter kid. Um, but I think the garage, there's a there's space in the garage I can do there. I am building a studio space in the garage, so... Ooh. That you know, maybe it could go. Maybe it could have gone there as a nice little bit of set decoration. I, you're not going to use the garage for a car. You're actually going to use it as a studio space. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a film green screen stuff. I we I parked the car on the, on the driveway. But in this new issue of the magazine, it's a bumper one. But we're with it for four weeks. We will start with the network section. And Luke, there's problems for the 3DO. No, our, our little our boy, our little boy, the 3DO. Yeah, it's been a disturbing month for the 3DO. Sanyo, the lowest profile 3DO manufacturer, has cut its targets back from making 250,000 machines to just 20,000 machines. I think you were going to say just 20. No, there is definitely an extra 3Os. I don't, there's a comma, <laughs> so they didn't just hold down the key too long. Yeah. But this follows news from America that the widely reported collaboration between Sega and the 3DO company over the next generation 3DO technology M2 has been scrapped. We don't really have anything to exchange, a Sega of America representative commented. 3DO owners will also be disappointed to hear that Disruptor, hyped as the killer 3DO game for this Christmas, is now likely not to arrive until 1996. But the worst news of all for UK owners is that WH Smiths have decided to drop the console. Machines and software will no longer be available through the retailer. It never got mass market, a Smith's boss commented. They're summing up that the 3DO range of software has never really been great was cruel without the addition that it's still got more than its fair share of quality games. It really did. It did get some really, really quality games. But sadly, with the Panasonic commitment appearing to also waver, it's uncertain whether 3DO will have the power to fight back. Bad news, poor trip. And relating to that Panasonic lack of commitment, two separate Sega of America sources confirmed that Panasonic have asked if they can produce a Saturn. Uh-huh. The unit would be fully compatible with current Sega titles and is likely to resemble the Sega Hitachi and JVC machines. As yet, there is no firm indicator of whether it would be aimed at a specific market in the way that the Hitachi and JVC machines target video CD users. Although Sega of America were reported as saying that the Panasonic Saturn would definitely go ahead at the time of going to press, the deal has not yet been finalised. Oh man, it was, a, it was a rough old go of it for the 3DO. You know, the Series 3 did their best to, you know, put their foot behind it. Actually, Series 4 in particular really made a big push for it, but it just never really caught on. I think the Mega Drive and the SNES just had too much of a foothold on the UK market. And by the time people were ready to move on from the Mega Drive and SNES, the PlayStation was here. 
and that was the better option. But last couple of bits of news for this issue, because I say it's a fairly chonko issue, lots of stuff to cover. So I'm just going to try and get through network for now. Related to the 3DO, Gold Star, remember Gold Star? Mm -hmm. Their 3DO, they're cutting the price. It's going to be down to just £299, making it the same price as the Panasonic 3DO. It's being bundled with FIFA and means that both 3DO machines are £100 cheaper than the Saturn and retail discounting may make them even cheaper. What's the PlayStation at? Was, like, was that 299 or was that 199 That was 299 Okay, so it's the same price. So yeah, I mean, you have, a suppose, a bigger library if you were to pick the 3DO, but really, like, the PlayStation's the one to pick there. Hey, Luke, do you remember a few weeks back when we were talking about Killer Instinct coming to the Ultra 64? I seem to recall so, yes. And it was definitely coming out. Oh, yeah, 100%. No questions asked. Nope, absolutely none at all. Ultra Killer Instinct scrapped. Oh man, just a few weeks later. News has reached us that due to problems with development, Nintendo have opted to launch Killer Instinct 2 with the machine when it comes out next April. Sources close to Nintendo revealed to us that because of the huge amounts of RAM that the coin-op uses, a conversion to the Ultra would have been virtually impossible to produce while matching the coin-op's high standards. The Ultra 64 has a lot less RAM than the arcade machine. Killer Instinct 2, however, will utilise the Ultra to the full, using all its extra power. There are no plans at the moment to produce a Killer Instinct 2 coin-op. Now hang on a second, Killer Instinct was one of the first two Ultra 64 games. They said it was powered by Ultra 64. I mean, how can it not work on the Ultra 64, Luke? Particularly because they put it on the SNES. Mmm. I don't buy that at all. No. No, I think that is absolute bobbins. (laughs) I think so as well. I think that they wanted to get a home release out, so they put it on the SNES. Anyway, we don't have to worry about that disappointment in the future, because we get to be disappointed by Killer Instinct Gold, sorry, 2, instead. Welcome to Games Master, the show that firmly believes that life begins with a comfortable, snug-fitting pant. Since you saw us last, the Angels and I have been helping underprivileged children. But now that we have Alpine Racer and the brand spanking new Tekken 2 arcade machine here, we vowed never to help the poor again. We have got something on this episode that we get a few times throughout Series 5, and it's something I actually quite like. It's show-long challenges. We have the Time Crisis one coming up in a few episodes' time, and... You know, Dom's introduction here, he's talking about Alpine Racer, but really the game that he's talking about here and the focus here is on Tekken 2. Because we have Tekken 2 is our first challenge on this episode, but it is going to run until the episode ends. Also, here we really get to see Dominic's increasing obsession with pants. Oh, yes, we do. Yeah. Life, life begins with a comfortable, snug fitting pants. Not pants, pant singular. I've got a blue squiggly line in my notes because Google is trying to tell me that that is grammatically incorrect. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I barely noticed mine because my notes, so many grammatical errors. (laughs) There is actually more blue squiggle line than there is not blue squiggle line some of the times. But also for some reason, the angels are grooving wearing cool sunglasses. I don't know why. It's something for them to do. Yeah, I guess like because Gamesmaster is wearing sunglasses later for the Alpine Racer Challenge intro. So is it connected to that? Uh, They do talk about holidays with our guest. I guess glare of the snow, maybe? Cool, like kind of snowboarding sunglasses, cool dude. Yeah, I mean, also, this is the brightest set we've ever been on for a series of Games Masters, so maybe they'll just walk up and be like, bloody hell, it's bright in here. 
So let's do a little bit more on this Tekken 2 challenge. And to find out a little bit more, let's head on over to Dominic Diamonds. Arcade beat-em-ups don't come with instructions. Apart from the basic punch and kick moves, they guard their secrets more closely than an overbearing ante. So it's up to the players to discover the special moves, combos, and secret characters. Most of us discover a handful of these before going to the pub, but some people take the whole thing a lot more seriously. When tall bloke Saul, not so tall bloke Mo, and averagely tall bloke Louie come across a new arcade machine, they get to work. Not in a fast food place or a small bank, but trying to discover every single move, character, and combo. We are Games Crackers. We're going to crack a game with the least amount of money possible. We stay a step ahead by, by, by being up to date, um, by working in a team. Yes, that's the whole idea. Organisation is the key to Games Crackers. I, uh, I love this. I think this is really, really great. This is a proper bit of Games Master that takes you back to a certain time when arcades were proper massive. And we, we, we had a bit of an arcade boom in the early 90s, but now we're into the mid 90s. Now you're starting to get people who are mad into their arcade machines and console cracking or game cracking, as they you sort of put it here. These people who are spending their times down at Tottenham Court Road finding all of the secrets on arcade machines. I think this is pretty rad. We're seeing a bit of Sega World here, maybe a bit of Las Vegas, maybe a bit of one of the Namco Wonder Park type situations. But also we're seeing someone's staff room. Hmm, whose staff room is this? I, I thought this might have been the back room of the, uh, the, the cafe they go to. Maybe, maybe, because basically we're meeting our three kind of game crackers, Soul, Mo and Louie. Or is it Lewis? Lewis or Louis? Anyway, we're meeting we, we, these three... Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. We're meeting these three geezers, and they're stalking the streets of Soho in the rain, black and white footage type stuff, very 90s music video. And then, yeah, we get this contrived meeting in a staff room somewhere. And they talk about working as a team and how communication is key to games cracking, which would be useful, given that this challenge is definitely, you know, sod everyone else, no communication required. But the next bit of this is the bit that excites me the most because they go to a Japanese bookstore. And the first step in this topply organised jaunt type situation is a visit to a Japanese bookstore in darkest North London. £8.40, serious money. That's why we have to make sure we get the best magazine for the job. This magazine's got everything you need. Secret options, power moves, combos. Only problem is, it's in Japanese. Don't worry more, ask that shop bloke to help you out. Mr. Kito, could you explain this move, please? Akira move, forward, forward, punch. Two, two, forward, punch. Yeah. And now one, that feels like cheating, because getting a Japanese magazine is not cracking a game. It's called... Research. It's called research. It's called getting a Japanese magazine and then bullying the shop owner into translating moves for you while throwing a camera in his face. Oi, Mr. Kito, what does this mean? And he's just like, I'll say anything to get rid of these guys. They barely <laughs> buy anything. They're just really annoying. But this bookstore was part of a larger shopping centre in Collindale called Oriental City, originally called Johan Plaza. It was built by an actual uh, retail company from Japan in the UK, basically being the Asian shopping destination, not just for London, but for the UK. They marketed it as London's real Chinatown. And whilst the Johan Retail Company did file for bankruptcy in the late 1990s, the centre continued. It became a bit lower end, a little bit less flashy, but continued to specialise in oriental foods and items, also contained various health services and social services for the Asian community. And even as late as like uh, 2006, it was receiving up to 10,000 visitors a week. But back at the time when this episode was being filmed, 
the center did actually contain quite a bit of cool stuff for the nerds. It had a shop selling video games and toys imported from Japan, a Sanrai boutique, and a bookshop called Asahaya Shoten. I probably murdered that, apologies to anyone that knows that I did, but that was one of the largest Japanese bookshops in Europe. And that was where they bought this magazine and bullied the shopkeeper. I never got to visit this place. I wish I had. It looks and sounds so cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, pricey £8.40 for a magazine. You can't even get a copy of Edge for that sort of cash. But at the same time, like it, is, it looks like... What, and what I really love about this feature is it's, it's a pure snapshot of mid-90s geek culture London. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, wow. I, I mean, I used to get access to some Japanese magazines once or maybe twice a year when I went to Birmingham for the memorabilia shows, or if I just went to Birmingham and there was one large comic shop that sometimes actually had import manga and stuff like that. But the concept of having a place like this, like within a travel card's reach, I didn't even know what a travel card was at that point, but you get my point. Absolutely, yeah. Louis, meanwhile, has just gone to an internet cafe and basically is browsing other people's work. But again... It's just another form of research. I just heavily appreciate the fact that he put all of his research onto a floppy disk. He did. We're keeping the floppy disk alive with our logo, and it's nice to see it represented here, even though it's long since gone from the title sequence, and indeed the consultation zone is dead and buried. But hey, we're still maintaining some brief cultural relevance to this 25-year-old TV show. So they go back to this little hidey hole they've got, which I'd imagine is probably just the future offices, or no, maybe not even the future offices, might just be the Hewland offices that they're just hanging out in, going through all their notebooks. Looking at it, I did wonder, did they just nick the staff room at like Sega World or or Namco Fun Park? Did they say, can we, can we, just, can we just use the break room just to film in? There's every possibility. I mean, we've got Derek Lynch from Funland, you know, in the commentary booth. Yeah, but... Essentially, they then all come together and they powwow over it. They discuss these moves they think they found out and then they go down to the arcades to try it out. And then they decide to cosplay as Dexter Fletcher from Series 3. Or Bin Men. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. Bear man, Tekken 2, it's in the arcades. We've had a lot of chat about it, I feel, on this show, on this show in particular, because we talked about it in Episode 0, it was featured in Episode 1, and now we're getting a full-on challenge of it here. Tekken 2 is the game that really does define the Tekken series. Tekken 1 is grand and all. Tekken 1's a very, very good game. But Tekken 2 is when it found its feet and people massively got into it. Made the arcades in June 1995 and the PlayStation got it around a year later, maybe slightly less. And I know I had Tekken the first. And I know I played it, but I can remember much more of Tekken 2 and Tekken 3 than I can of the first Tekken. I think it's because... They really went out there with the character selection. So, I mean, the arcade version, which we're talking about here, 10 playable characters as standard. The home version, 25 playable characters. <whistles> Massive roster for 1995. Even Mortal Kombat 3 didn't have that. A Mortal Kombat trilogy or Ultimate Mortal Kombat trilogy or whatever combination you want to have on that, that was still a ways in the future. But it wasn't just the selection of characters. It was the variety of characters. We had a kangaroo, Luke. We, uh, oh man, and I was like, when I was doing my book on video game movies and I was doing the Tekken chapter, there, I mean, we did get a Tekken movie in the end and it's pretty pants. The version of the Tekken movie we nearly got would have had the kangaroo in it. That would have been both great and terrible. <laughs> yeah, the kangaroo, it also had the, you know, the, um, the training, the wooden training block? 
the sentient wooden training block, that would have also featured in the film. One of the most shocking things, actually, a bet to me about that PlayStation version, which gave us the training doll and gave us the kangaroo, is that is that it, it's often considered like kind of, oh, arcade perfect conversion. And yet they had to rewrite almost everything for the conversion because the memory available on the PlayStation was half that of the arcade version. So the the space there for storing the characters, the backgrounds and everything like that, they had half of that to work with. And so it wasn't even a case of, oh, just downscale it. They had to completely go back and write it again from scratch whilst adding extra characters. Uh, the CGI endings for every character, they didn't exist in the arcade version. They were all created just for the PlayStation version, plus the numerous extra game modes, survival, time attack, team battle, practice mode, new arrangements of the music. You see a lot of lazy arcade ports. Even, even now, when you get the kind of retrospective collections and there is no reason for poor performance, you see a lot of really shonky ports. I'm looking at you, Grand Theft Auto. I'm looking at you, PlayStation Classic. PlayStation Classic, a retro console completely fixed by hackers. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And we've had the phrase Arcade Perfect thrown around a lot over the past five series, and a lot of the time, it's bobbins. Here, calling Tekken 2 on the PlayStation Arcade Perfect is bobbins, but I reckon it's better. It feels like it's a new game. It's not just a straight conversion. It's its whole separate thing, which is great. And I, that's a real good selling point then for people to pick up a PlayStation. And here are the three fine crackers who will be delivering the goods tonight. We have Lewis, Mo and Sol. Lewis, uh, on average, how long does it take you to uh, uncover the special moves in a new game? Well, you're looking at maybe to half, half an hour to an hour. Um, you'll, you'll come across maybe like a handful of the moves in Tekken. So quite quick, um, really? Um, not necessarily. If you've never played it before, it will be quite technically a challenge, but uh -huh. otherwise, yes. Talking of a technically challenging mode, do you think Tekken 2 is going to be a problem for you? Well, for us, it's not really a problem because we're top games crackers, but for the ordinary guy in the street, it's going to uh -huh. pose a lot of problems. That's because he doesn't have a fine pair of goggles. No, no, no. <laughs> That's no. why. You need the goggles. <laughs> so, Sol, tell us, why are you all in dungarees kind of things? For all the heavy-duty games playing, really. So, I'm pretty sure the guy's name is Louie. Dom calls him Louie in the opening video. Derek calls him Louie, but on set Dom calls him Lewis. Now, my approximation of this and sort of my uh, headcanon as to why this happened is because his name is probably spelt L-O-U-I-S. So written down, it looks like it's Lewis, but it's pronounced Louie. I worked with one uh, last year, in fact, Who's I and I kept calling him Lewis when I first met, like when I used to send emails into the show because that's how I thought his name was, but his name was Louis. And I reckon that Dom saw his name written down on a piece of paper and when he was interviewing him on the set, kept calling him Lewis. And then Derek corrected him to Louis. However, later on in the episode, he does call him Lewis again. Do you think it's because we all grew up with Ghostbusters? I think or either that or like if you look at it, it just looks like it's Lewis. Yeah, but also, I mean, the first person I encountered called Lewis was Lewis Tully. Maybe. I mean, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. You know, there was a reason why I think I was scared of dogs for as long as I was, because of the terror ones. Had you met dogs with glowing red eyes and horns? Hey, they all look like that, you know, after a while. Especially in Reading. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But they kind of talk about how, you know, like, it takes 30 to 60 minutes to work out moves in a game like Tekken, but one of them, Mo, in fact, has got fancy goggles, and that is going to be his key to success. Safety is important, Luke. Safety is important. Well, you know what? We've heard from Tekken 2. We've heard from our players. 
What's our actual challenge, Games Master? At the end of the show, each contestant will reveal the three most spectacular moves they've uncovered. I will look at each contestant's findings in turn and um, award the joystick accordingly. May the best man win. So it's, it's a subjective challenge, which I'm not sure we've actually had on our podcast run thus far. But whoever impresses the Games Master the most gets the joystick. And by Games Master, we probably mean Dave Perry. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But Dom invites Louis to step up first. And then all three of them just stand there and stare at Dom. And he's like, in your own time, lads, uh, any time you want to actually move. And they're like, oh, right. Yes, of course. But we're then joined in the commentary box by Derek Lynch, not David Lynch, as I kept writing on the note. <laughs> that being a very interesting challenge. So the crackers have started and helping to explain exactly what they're doing is Games Master's very own arcade expert, Derek Lynch from Funland. Derek, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> now, Derek, um, how are they going to be working through this then? Well, first of all, they'll try some of the moves and combos that they know from previous games mm -hmm. and different button tricks and so on, and hopefully they'll get some moves out. Now, I see, Derek, that while one of the guys is playing, the other two are looking at his hands and things like that. I know they right. usually work as a team, mm -hmm. but what, what are they doing now for tonight? Well, in this case, because it's competition, they're trying to steal the moves off each other. Right, so watch it exactly <laughs> what right. button combinations That's that the other right, guys do. do yeah. And he's Games Master's own arcade expert. He's from Namco Funland, who also probably helped provide the machine. And he explains that to start with, they'll try moves and combos they remember from previous games to try and evolve it from there. It's a smart tactic. It's what we all do when we sit down with a new Street Fighter or indeed any fighting game. Always check that quarter circle first. Yeah, quarter circle or the back forward or the punch, punch, kick, kick. You know, there, there's some things that you can just try, although slightly less useful in Tekken because it does have kind of a different fighting mechanic in many ways. But your 2Ds, your Mortal Kombat's, your Street Fighters, you've got your standard set of inputs. You know at least one of them is going to produce something. I really like Derek. Uh, this isn't going to be his only appearance in this series. And I think he is really, really strong because Kirk and Rick are there to kind of take the piss a little bit. And sort of like they're in with Dom on the joke about, you know, we'll, we'll kind of make some wisecracks as we do this. Dave is still in that weird position where no one really likes him. So his commentary always feels a little bit stilted. Plus Dom's taken the mick out of him the entire time, but they really like Derek. And so Derek takes it seriously and that makes Dom take it seriously as well. I think those two work really, really nicely together. I think Derek is a really good presence in series five. And it's interesting to note that when someone that Dom respects is there and, and is taking it seriously, Dom also takes it seriously because Dom's like, oh, I noticed that they're watching each other's hands. And Derek's like, yeah, it's because this is a competition. They're watching each other's hands to try and steal moves and button combos or things that they can evolve from. It's really, really smart. I, and I'm, I just think this is a really fun challenge. If, like blokes called Tarquin, for example, you have a PC but no friends to play with, Mr. Help is firmly at hand, with BT starting a network gaming service next year. Simply connect your PC to Wireplay, choose your opponents from up to 3,000 other people logged on, and you're off, so to speak. There's no registration. All you need is a copy of any Wireplay compatible game and the Wireplay software will be distributed free. It's the usual phone calls charged at standard rate type situation, so friendless folk unite. You have nothing to lose but time you could spend going out and meeting real people. Now, this was the beginning of internet gaming for the modern age. I remember using the Wireplay service, I think, at a couple of points because it stuck around. It launched to the public 
around June 1996. And at its peak, there were more than 100,000 registered users and 50,000 of those were active monthly. So it was popular by comparison to where the PC was at. Uh, the first version could support 500 concurrent players and 50,000 registered, but version two and onwards went up to 1,000 concurrent players and then 3,000. And eventually it was like sold off by BT. It was sold off to Gameplay Inc. And they just started adding numerous improvements, including more games. Uh, Half-Life was supported. And also you could separate games out by the mods that they were including. Uh, they also added peer-to-peer -peer support, server-based games, a new user interface. It ran and ran and didn't get shut down until 2014. It's a long old running thing. I would have thought, like when I saw this, I was like, oh, this probably shut down in like 99, 2000, 2001 or something. Until, you know, you start reading up on it. Like, wow, 2014 this ran until? That's really, really cool. And it had some big old titles supported on there. You mentioned Half-Life, Colin McRae, Warcraft 2, Age of Empires. These were big popular games. And it had, I mean, at its peak, that's a great 100,000 registered users. Yeah, and they were really smart in how they launched it because it was launched in June 96 to tie in with the UEFA Euro 96 tournament and the game. It was one of the first supported games on the system. AKA the greatest football tournament that's ever been held. Absolutely, three lines on the shirt. Um, BT didn't just stop with the UK though, they licensed the technology and it launched in the US and Australia and not, you know, BT made bank from that. And then Wireplay was sold as a service to internet cafes that were opening inside blockbuster video stores. So again, people could go in and play games and the branding was there and they know that they could do it there they could also take it home it also early days of esports 1998 it hosted quakeadelica a quake 2 tournament in london it grew it became big and eventually internet gameplay became more standard and it became something that people didn't need a third-party service to necessarily do but for a long time wireplay was a big big player I would wager that the internet cafes that I used to go to in the early 2000s probably were running on Wireplay. Probably. Yeah, going down there and playing Counter-Strike. Oh. Which, which is a game I actually didn't really like much, but all my mates liked playing it. I wanted to play Unreal Tournament, but everyone just wanted to play Counter-Strike. But it was, it was too slow for me. I liked Unreal Tournament. Yeah, Unreal Tournament was a much, much, that for me was a much more fun game, a bit more action. Once again, other shows are left far behind mumbling we're not funny or clever because these are exclusive pictures from Japan of the new arcade sensation there, Speed King. This large ungainly object recreates lunch-losing drops, caustic curves and even 360-degree spins. One Speed King arrives in the UK in January, boasting a choice of two cars, mild and hard motion options, four tracks and undoubtedly the fastest gameplay ever. It's also the most expensive arcade game ever, costing 115 grand, so even I can't buy it. Until next week, anyway. Dude, this thing is massive. Thing's huge. Like, I know that the game gets ported to the PlayStation later on down the line, but... Surely the appeal of this game, Speed King, is being in that massive cab. Yeah, this, I mean, it did get a PlayStation port. Um, long story short, it was shit. But this is Speed King. It would set you back £115,000. It is the most expensive game cabinet in the world. And boy, howdy, it's a weird shared universe thing because it's set inside Neo Kobe City which is the setting of Snatcher, and the player is racing kind of like essentially F-Zero-esque or Wipeout-esque machines, but 
all of the machines come from a Konami IP. You've got one there based on Gradius. You've got one there called Solid Snake based on the Metal Gear. You've got one from Red Fighter, from Gyrus. You've got an F-Logger from Frogger. There's all this stuff kind of like tying into this idea of a shared Konami universe. And it's also just kind of sad because, man, Konami suck now. No, don't they just f*** your Castlevania NFTs? But it is essentially a wipeout, but steeped in Konami lore. It's also never been properly dumped for emulation, as far as I can tell. So you can't just plug it in via MAME. Uh, Part of that's due to, I guess, copyright protection. Part of it's due to the lack of accessibility to a working ROM set. But for completionists, there is a PlayStation 1 port out there. It's not as good, but it at least lets you see what they were doing. But as I said, I think the appeal of this game is the cab. You know, like a lot of these sort of gimmicky arcade machines that we're going to see as we move into towards the end of the 90s, we actually get one in a second with Alpine Racer. The Like the home conversion of that isn't as much fun as being in the ginormous cabinet that, that you would have been in, a, in an arcade. The game may be grand and everything, or you know, the conversion may be rubbish. That That's neither here nor there. The fun of it is actually being in the machine itself. I mean, when we shot our promo video at Heart of Gaming, they had the F-Zero cab there and also the um, the Afterburner cab there. Those were the gimmicky kind of tilty, swirly cabinets. They were a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's way more fun. Like, it enhances the game as opposed to just sitting on your couch at home with a controller in your hands. And now, news for blokes who like alien films. Wow. A special four-minute alien movie is the latest experience in American motion theatre yeah, rights. I don't believe I'm going back. There's no Sigourney Weaver, but the £2 million movie does boast loads of cheesy special effects and some of the worst acting we've ever seen. Hey, if you ever wanted to see Aliens, directed by Stuart Gordon, starring Jeffrey Coombs, well, now you can! I mean, Aliens ride at the speed of fright? It's, um, it's something that happened. I have watched it, because it's on the Blu-ray box sets, and, you know, I, I, I love it because... It's, it's like watching Aliens, but like it's reanimator, but it's Aliens in a, in a way because, you know, the director and its star, but it is, um, it's not great. It's, it's hardly Terminator 2 The Ride, let's put it that way. No, but I mean, it's not meant to be. This is just a motion simulator ride. You know, the sort of thing that you get a lot. You just kind of you go into this kind of like shoebox with seats and you jolt around, you watch a movie, boom, the end, you know, that's it. Terminator the ride did have actors and stunts and real props. You know, there was a film element, but also it was a lot about live action people as well. I suppose Back to the Future the ride is probably a more apt comparison. This one, other than the jolting, you don't really miss out on much by just watching it on the Aliens Anthology set. Yeah. But it's low budget. It's fun enough. The acting is really, really questionable. Uh, They spent $2 million on this, and I suspect a lot of that was spent on the license. Uh, We see shots of Colonial Space Marines. We see shots of alien warriors. We also see a shot of the alien queen, which we only see it briefly in this, and I haven't checked the Blu-ray set, but it looks like it might actually be an alien queen toy rather than the prop from the movie. It may also just be stock footage because a lot of it is made up of stock footage. Ah, 
Well, I mean, they spent all that money on Jeffrey Coombs. You can't afford to shoot that much extra. Um, but also this was done by iWorks, who we talked about a lot in Series 4. I can't remember why we talked about a lot in Series 4, but they came up in a ride that we did. And they were like, and still are, the big sort of motion ride guys. Welcome back. Our crackers have only been going for a few minutes, but already they've uncovered some exceptionally competent special moves. Derek, talk us through the ones we've seen. Well, here we have Mo using the character Nina. He's going to show us an excellent example of a combo arm break. One break, two break, gets the other arm, three breaks. Ouch! Oh, Very painful what you see amazing. in the replay there. She doesn't muck about this girl, does she? Right. Grabs both arms. And that's, and it. that's no, it. Nothing left but to fall <laughs> the floor. OK, who's this then? OK, we have Sol here using Paul. The kick there and there straight into a leg counter. Catching the leg, hates it. Straight into the ground. Fantastic. Turning defence into attack. That's right. And finally, we have something that Lewis has managed to come up with. Right. Louis using Bayek. Thundering oh. right. Leg strike. That was. And a, and a gentle chop uh, between the legs, just That's for right. good measure there, Derek. <laughs> Our cracking blokes have been at the game for just a handful of minutes thus far, but, you know, they've already found a few special moves, which is dead impressive for the amount of time they've been given. Granted, I suppose, we don't actually know how long they were given uh, in comparison to the edit itself. No, but, I mean, Mo has a combo arm break from Nina that can take a solid 50% of your energy off. Sol has a pull combo that takes a leg and turns it into a leg counter. And Louis is playing as back... Bake? Bake? I have no idea. Who has a charging kick and a groin stomp. But the lads are going to continue to work on their moves while we head over for a celebrity challenge. So we have two challenges running consecutively. Yeah, what are we playing, Games Master? We are sending our next contestant out on the piste on the sensational arcade experience Alpine Racer. Finding themselves atop a virtually vertical ski run, they'll have the crystally clear task of skiing their way to the resort at the bottom before the clock runs out. What they must do is pass through the gates as each one navigated will give them an extra second. Crucial, if they're going to reach the glass of sparkling wine I've got waiting for them at the bottom. So we've got Games Master looking cool in his sunglasses. I I love Alpine Racer. I love this kind of gimmicky thing. I liked Alpine Racer. I like the surf one, the kind of um, the jet ski racer type thing. Anything where you're kind of like using your body to steer and stuff like that. The ones I remember seeing the most around this time were the horse racing ones. They seem to be in a lot of arcades that I went to, along with as well like the jet ski ones, motorbike ones. Alpine Racer, I don't think I ever saw it in person, but I seem to recall... Do you remember you you used to see these sorts of things in service stations as well? I remember like always driving up the M60 to get towards Liverpool and stopping off at service stations, and there was always these sorts of gimmicky type things, unless it was Time Crisis. I'm fairly certain Alpine Racer existed in one of our Laser Quest type uh, places in Cheltenham. Yeah. Also, definitely would have been... Um, in the basement or in Sega World uh, when I went up to London for the first couple of times. So that I'm I'm definitely certain I played it there. 
Ah, it's interesting that you mentioned the horse racing uh, ones because we get those coming up down the line because I saw the thumbnail and boy howdy, there's a horse racing arcade game and some low-cut tops and I'll leave it at that for now. And on the piste with us today, please welcome the best reason to watch Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, Jadine Duran. Feeling fantastic at this point in time, Jadine, because I'm sorry, I have to say, you're probably the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my entire life. And you're the most beautifulest man I've ever seen in my entire life. Listen, don't, because I'm just going to lose the plot completely here. But I believe, I, I, was that not too forward of me to say that? Is that all right? No, that's absolutely fine. I've got to grab every chance I get, Jadine, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm not, you know, I don't hang back. No, sorry. Um, I've completely forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, yes, I was going to ask you, have you ever been on a skiing holiday before? Never, never, never. in my life, no. So this is the first time for you? Yep. On, on the piece. What's your perfect holiday then, your dream holiday? My perfect holiday would have to be the Caribbean. Doing what, what would you like to be doing during the jet day? skiing. Oh, Monty, lovely. Could I come with you? Yeah, you're quite welcome if you want to pay. Well, that, I, listen, I would, I would pay a fantastic amount of money, Jadine. Honestly, yeah, I'd sell the house, I'd sell my kids, I'd do the whole lot, do you know what I mean? Well, when should we go then? And I think this may be the first celebrity we've had on this show that does not have a Wikipedia page, that wasn't, you know, an actor for five weeks on Neighbours. Yeah, because who we have here is Jadine Duran, who at this point was basically known for being Chris Evans' girlfriend and Miss Let Your Hair Down on Chris Evans' Saturday night light entertainment show, Don't Forget Your Toothbrush. She is on this show because Dom fancies her. Like, that is unquestionably the only reason that she is here. And, and interestingly, she was Miss Let Your Hair Down on Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, but she was the hostess on the second series of Don't Forget Your Toothbrush. The hostess on the first series was Rachel Tatton Brown, who had previously worked on The Big Breakfast and was also then Chris Evans' girlfriend. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I wonder how they both got these gigs is sort of the, the big question we could ask of them. I wonder how Chris Evans got them as girlfriends, I think is the other question. And I think the answer is the same. Exactly, yeah, his big load of money. But Dom doesn't care that she's seeing Chris Evans because he wastes no time here and just says, I, I think you're the most beautiful woman I've seen in my entire life. Poor Natalie Imbruglia. She's already been replaced. Well, that's all right, because Jadine thinks that Dom is the most beautifulest man she's ever seen in her entire life. Poor Chris. Yeah. <laughs> These two do play off each other quite well. You know, like it's she has a very short career. Like she is basically gone from the public eye by 1996. And even then you could hardly say that she is massively in with the public eye she, as opposed to being Chris Evans' girlfriend. But like she's pregnant in 1996 and then puts her career on hold so she can just look after the kid instead. You know, which is quite admirable really. I was reading an interview with her. She sounds like a really nice person. And yeah. I like and I like the way she bounces off of Dom here. Oh, God, yeah, their interplay is so good because, I mean, obviously we've heard from Dom about how he regrets about how he acted sometimes when people weren't in on the joke. She was, and she was going toe-to-toe. -to -toe, and he's like, I'm sorry, it might be a bit forward. And she's like, no, 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 it's all good. And she's like, she's never been skiing, but a perfect holiday would be the Caribbean. And Dom can come as well if he's paying. And Dom's like, yeah, I'll sell the house, the kids, which is interesting because he may have had a house, but he didn't have kids at the time. But he'll sell the whole lot. And he is proper giggling like a schoolboy and just is like, I, I got to get on the blow. I got to go to the travel agent pronto. I think it's a really, really fun bit of banter. I, I very much enjoy these two. And I, he learned from the Natalie and Brulia experience to let's prep people before I just start doing my usual stick. Yeah. Let's make sure that they're going to be in on the joke and may even bring something. And she definitely does. This is genuinely funny. 
I think it catches him off guard how much he's into it. Okay, well, uh, we're going to take a short break now while I call up the travel agents. In the background, we've still, there, we've still got the crackers going on. We'll have Jadine on the piece after the break. With TSB's phone banking service, I can do just about all my banking, even pay my bills over the phone, anytime. Yes! Phone bank, new from TSB. 0500 758 758. We want you to say yes. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Two seats to the opera. Wasted. At the deadline for deadline. I did try to call. Well, I hope the coffee's good. It's gold blend. How was that Scottish trip? Log fires, sheepskin rugs. It was cold, it was wet, it was work. The unique balance of rich and smooth makes Nescafe gold blend. Thank you. What for? You know what for. Hey, I don't want the man you love to get the wrong idea. I don't remember saying I loved him. Jadine Duran is just about to try Alpine Racer and of course under Scottish law Jadine and I are technically boyfriend and girlfriend now. Help me co-commentate back by popular demand is Kirk Ewan. Kirk this is going to be a tough challenge. What tips can you offer Jadine? Well the main thing Jadine should be looking for here is to go through as many gates as possible Dominic. She gets an extra second for every gate she goes through and the other thing is to use uh, her natural rhythm to the best possible advantage. Not too much extreme movements? No that's right. If she keeps the movements down to as minimal as possible 
heads for the gates. Okay, thanks very much, Kirk. Well, there is an official fit bird on set, so you bet your bottom dollar Kirk Ewing is in the booth to join Dominic Diamonds. Ah, but it's too late for Kirk because under Scottish law, Jadine and Dom are now boyfriend and girlfriend. Which is a really funny line. Like, you can see her laughing about it, Kirk's having a laugh about it as well. Like, this is the sort of Dom and his mates era of Games Master that I think people tend to forget about. The time when it's not just Dom and his mates having fun, it's Dom and his mates and everyone on set is having fun. It's a giggle. It's a bit of a laugh. And there's no crying children involved. (laughs) But Kirk is also there to provide us with vital information about the challenge. He reminds us that she needs to get through those gates to keep the clocks ticking and keep the movements to a minimum. Just utilize her natural rhythm. (laughs) Yeah, I see what you did there, Kirk. And in fairness to her, I mean, she only misses two gates in this. And she does pretty well. There's a one point where she nearly goes arse over tea kettle and like courses out basically, and the game recovers it for her. Yeah, she literally almost just goes off the edge of a mountain. It's kind of hilarious. Hits this invisible wall, and the visible wall puts her back on course. In fact, the only downside to this challenge is she generally does so well, nothing much of note happens to the point where Dom and Kirk start discussing Jadine's avatar's outfit. She is doing well, and I must say it's a fantastically attractive outfit she's got on for this particular skiing challenge. I mean, that is really a very... Is it a red or a mauve, Kirk? I would say it's more of a pink, Dominic. More of a pink. But yeah, other than that brief course out, which she manages to correct, she does really, really well. It's only towards the end when she misses a second gate and the clock starts to run dangerously low. And it gets proper tense right at the end. And it it was on OO when she crossed the line. I genuinely didn't know the first time I rewatched this if the game was actually going to go, yeah, you're allowed that. Or if it was just going to go, game over. It's a long final second. Like you, you, you feel every single millisecond of it as she's trying to cross that line. When I first watched this, I was like, oh, I wonder if they just handed it to her because, you know, oh, she basically won and that. But the game says you crossed it in time. She must have been like proper milliseconds off failing. Jadine, absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Was, thank there, you. was there any point at all where you were getting a little bit worried, thinking it was getting a bit hairy? The trees, the trees come at me a little bit too fast, yeah. but I pulled it through, made it, got um, through that flag. That was fantastic. The only other thing is, though, I noticed when you were playing, I know what you said about us going on holiday, yeah. but I noticed you've got a ring on the third finger of your left hand. That's my dad's. Oh, so, so you're not actually, no, so you're not no, engaged. I'm young, free and single. You are? So yeah. I have still pulled? Yes. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Lovely. But post-match and JD and she was briefly worried about the trees, but Dom has bigger concerns because during the challenge, he noticed there was a wedding ring on her finger. It's okay. It's just her dad's. She married her dad. Well, you know, Scottish law and all that, I guess. <laughs> According to her, she's young, free and single, and therefore Dom has still pulled. And you just feel like Dom's there like, well, you know, I suppose I better go back to the tech and stuff now. I don't really want to, but that's Dem's the rules. But yeah, he does present her with her joystick with enormous relish. Or is that just the way the light's catching his trousers? Well, you see here, Sol has discovered Lay's special powerhouse move. Watch carefully. On one leg, straight over the top, full energy. Person takes right out. Here, you see Louis using Nina, who's going to do a leg breaker. Over the top, onto the ground, snaps with the leg. Also, you'll see Nina do a python. Gets her energy up. Splash! 
And there you go. Here you see Mo has discovered Yoshimitsu's 10 hit combo. Kicks. Oh, finish off with the oh, amazing sword slash there right through the center. Back to our cracking blokes, and they have found some more fun moves here, including Sol has found Lay's, I initially wrote in my notes, powerhouse move, and that's what it is called, but I kept reading it back as powerbomb move. Nope, it's definitely a powerhouse move, which is fucking one hit kill. Yeah, if your health is just a little bit below, it's a 60 to 70% move. Like, it will just wipe out a health bar. It's deadly impressive. Louis is sticking with Nina, finds a leg breaker and a python move. Mo has my favourite, though. A 10-hit combo from Yoshimitsu. It's at this point here that it's quite evident Mo is the best at this game. Because Mo's 10-hit combo he's found for Yoshimitsu is so good. And actually, when we get to the end of this, spoilers for the end of the episode... The stuff he's found is easily the most impressive. Yeah, he is where the money is at on this. But Don returns from his long lingering goodbye to Jadine to find out just how much change this cracking business needs. And they reckon you need a solid pocket full of shrapnel to be effective, at least 20 quid. I suppose it also depends where your arcade machines are, because of course regional, you know, some places would be 20p, some would be 50, some would be a pound. I would have thought this would have been a quid. I remember Super Street Fighter 2 was a quid. I remember that because I remember my dad being so mad that he gave me a quid to play it and I got beaten dead quickly. So if you've only got 20 quid and it's a pound a go, you've really got to week that out. You've got to be dead good to make that 20 quid last. I remember my mates and I uh, completing House of the Dead 4 on Arcade when that came out in Pompey. And I think we probably plugged in 30 quid each to get to the end boss and finish the game. But these guys are good. I mean, they're not just crackers. They are solid game players. They're not really losing much. In fact, they're eking out the fights, I guess, just to try and try as many different move combos as possible. And they're probably working, they're probably playing it two-player as well. So you can just sort of stop. You're not playing against a computer who's actively trying to beat you. True. Although even if they are playing against the computer, they probably let a computer win a round because then you get your three rounds out of it. Mm, yeah, true. But Dom is quite pleased that they found some juicy surprises because otherwise he'd have to give them a bit of a kicking. He also calls him Lewis again. First up, the best-looking football thing since that lady in the manageress, Goldstorm on the Sony PlayStation. It's got everything. It's got the animation. It's got little flick-ups. It's got overhead kicks. It's got free kicks, penalties, and some amazing swooping around the pitch effects. My only quibble with what is the first PlayStation's first football game is with the sound. The music's a little bit mundane at the moment, and also the players sound like they're walking on packets of Walker's crisps. I think the sound's okay. This is the definitive console football game. It's brilliant. It kicks victory goal, the Sega Saturn alternative, right out of the ballpark. It's the game that would eventually become Pro Evo Goldstorm on the PlayStation, which features, as Rick puts it, amazing swooping around the pitch effects. Called cameras. <laughs> And this, again, is more of, you mentioned this in last week's episode, but this is, we get it in two different states here, of Rick saying something, Dave making a point, and then Rick going, that point shit, ignore what Dave said. But you are right to mention this is the predecessor to Pro Evo Soccer. Uh, it was the first installment of the Winning Eleven franchise. It also had a very well-received sequel that was known as Superstar Soccer Pro, also World Soccer winning 11.97 in Japan, Goldstorm 97 in North America. And this game looks good. We've seen a couple of football games. We saw it, I think, during the PlayStation preview. We saw two football games. There was this, and then there was the one that looked sh**. 
Yeah, and even then, and I said this in last week's episode as well, I still don't think it looks as good as FIFA on the 3DO. I haven't got that, I suppose, but I suppose you haven't got that EA money. Also, this is proper 3D, whereas the 3DO one is kind of... It's fudging things a little bit, just just a tiny bit. But I still think it looks better. I'm not arguing, but I'm just saying these guys are going, we're doing a 3D football game and it's going to be properly 3D. Which I think you know, is, is absolutely fair enough. Like Dave's only complaint about the game has got nothing to do with the visuals. It's the sound. And then it just cuts back to Rick, who's like, fuck Dave Perry, the game sounds fine, just buy it. I mean, his exact line is, it sounds like they're walking on packets of Walker's crisps, which I guess just means he doesn't like salt and vinegar. To introduce Walker's new, tastier salt and vinegar flavour, they're calling them salt and vinegar. Very good, that's a good callback. Thank you. 93%, like that is a really big score for this. Like we have had big hitter after big hitter so far. So we had Wipeout last week. We had Ballerina Toshinen last week. That got a really good score. We had Wipeout, which got a massive score. Then we got Goldstorm, another massive score. And our next game, spoilers, gets an even bigger score. Although I do just want to say that Rick does get in at the end of the soccer review that it kicks victory goal on the Saturn right out of the ballpark. Oh, poor old Saturn already. Oh, mate. I mean, we are two episodes into this and we haven't had an absolute snifter of Saturn mention. Now, the Mario gang return on the Super NES to make Jimmy Nintendo another bundle of yen in Yoshi's Island. The main difference from previous Mario games is that you're now controlling Yoshi and Yoshi moves very differently to the old Mario sprite. He doesn't jump quite as well and he has a long tongue he can use to grab things like flowers and various pickups along the way which he then turns into a stone or an egg to fire at the enemies. This takes some mastering. There are six worlds in Yoshi's Island and on each world there are ten levels. And although it seems very small in comparison to other Mario games, it's actually such a tough game that it really doesn't matter. Does the world, after all this time, after Donkey Kong, does, do Nintendo owners need another Mario game? I think they do. I think there's always room for another Mario game. But the SNES is still here with Yoshi's Island Super Mario World 2. <laughs> Tom clearly hates this. Like, we, you know, we had that magazine article where he was ragging on mascots. This is the sort of thing that Dom is like, why haven't we left this in the dust yet? I mean, in the case of Yoshi's Island, because it's fucking good. It's great, isn't it? It's a really, really good game. I know, like, and you people will be like, the sound effects are pretty annoying with the crying Mario. You're absolutely right. It is an annoying sound effect. Don't lose Mario. It's tough as old boots is Yoshi's Island as well, but it is a cracking, cracking game. I don't know if I prefer it over Mario World, but I think it's a superb sequel and an interesting sequel as well. Yeah, it had a long old development cycle. I mean, it was in development for four years and needed a Super FX chip to help with some of the special effects. So this is still a traditional platformer game, albeit quite a departure for Mario, but it's it's needing that extra oomph already. This is not the last gasps of the Super Nintendo, but definitely it needs some performance-enhancing drugs. You know, I'm just saying those, those mushrooms aren't just a health food. And it's one of the things I always really liked about Nintendo when it comes to sequels is they could have played it easy. They could have absolutely just released Mario World 2 or, you know, Super Mario World 5, whatever you want to call it, and just do another Mario world. He goes to a different world, goes through 96 exits, this, that, and the other. But they looked at him and were like, well, how, what can we do that's different? 
and they released this and it could have fallen flat on its ass as it has done with some Mario games when they've tried new things looking at you Mario Sunshine but more often than not they strike gold and this is one of those instances where they absolutely strike gold absolutely and this didn't just do great things with the Mario name this also established the style and the way forward for the Yoshi franchise and also the respect that Yoshi would get as a character and indeed the creative forces behind him So this didn't just continue one franchise, it continued one franchise and launched another. There are still separate Mario and Yoshi games to this day. And in fact, this would also technically be the last original Mario game in 2D for a decade. Yeah, right. I mean, what a way to go out as well. An absolutely cracking way to go out. But it does give me some confusion with the naming. Because if you remember way back in the mists of time when we got called out about whether it was Super Mario Brothers 4 or Super Mario World. And turns out, it was both. It was both. It was Super Mario Brothers 4, Super Mario World. But this one is Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. Yeah, and later on we're also going to get Super Mario Advance 2, Super Mario World. And Super Mario Advance 3, Yoshi's Island. Yeah. Um, it, it gets it starts to get a little bit Legend of Zelda after a while, doesn't it? I think basically what I'm trying to say is don't criticise us for getting stuff like that wrong, because even <laughs> Nintendo don't know what the fuck they're doing half the time. But it's a great game. They're very positive about it here. I mean, really, the only criticism they have against it is, A, that it's tough, but even then they say that doesn't matter. The question comes up is, with everything moving into 3D, with games moving past this 2d mega drive snes era is there room for a mario game like this and dave perry's the one who'd be like there's always room for jello sorry there's always room for a mario game he's right it's a rare agree between rick and dave here they're both on board for more mario and they're especially both on board for yoshi's island 94 percent what a whopping old score that oh we better address that balance with our final and somewhat unusual for this show review Rick and Dave don't get out much, we're letting them go to the pictures to see one of the most fantastic looking ladies I've ever married, Sandra Bullock, in The Net, which opens on October the 6th, and it's about a happy hacker whose identity is deleted when she gets involved in an evil corporation, sinister multinational, dirty tricks type situation. Well, you have been virus, Mr. DePina, and uh, not so very nice one. You are the best. I knew I could count you. So what should we do? Well... Don't think about hitting the escape key on any of the systems for a while. One key stroke will wipe out your whole system. God, I don't know how these things happen. You know, I just ordered that security program last week. What's it called? Gatekeeper? Well, that's what they all say. Did you install it? Absolutely. The minute we got it, I think. Not to worry. Everything's under control. It's going to be okay. You're the best, Angela. Now, do you think we'll be able to get this back in stores by week's end? Absolutely. Everything but the virus. A friend of mine collects them. I don't know. Some people say string. You are a genius, Angela. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> it tells the story of a young woman who has her whole identity changed on the internet when hackers get into the FBI's mainframe and they steal her identity. They change her name, they take her house, they take her national insurance details, everything. But really, it's a very dire movie. Sandra Bullock is probably the only interesting character in it, and without the presence of a really nasty bad guy, it all takes a little too long to unfold. As it was, it turned out to be a very, very tepid version of Pelican Brief with computers instead. Mind you, the computer literacy is quite good. The very fact that occasionally a virus happens, although they have given it that Hollywood effect. A virus happens by dissolving the screen. Very bizarre, that. It doesn't really happen in real life. Yeah, the internet is fine on a one-to-one basis, but as far as making a Hollywood movie out of it, I don't think so. It's all just a little bit too boring. 
Yeah, this is more of that Dominic Diamond moving Games Master, not away from games, but broadening its horizons a little bit. So it's not just about games. We saw that in episode one when he did, you know, we're going to be talking about gadgets. We're going to be talking about CD-ROMs. Remember CD-ROM of the week? That'll be back at some point. But also we're doing movie reviews. But I think they are doing movie reviews about movies that this audience would be interested in. You know, they're talking about the net here because it's the internet, it's computers and this, that and the other. Like, I think they probably would have done Stargate because of the special effects and maybe they'll do, you know, Waterworld again because of special effects. But I don't think they're going to be reviewing Oscar-nominated movies, anything like that. You know, probably they wouldn't have done Apollo 13. No, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I mean, I guess this is relevant to our interests. It's Sandra Bullock's latest movie, The Net, and you'd have thought it would be nigh on impossible to make a celluloid interweb sound breathtakingly exciting, and you'd be spot on. This is in that period of time, and actually, I say this is that period of time, they're going to be in this period for a long while, where Hollywood couldn't work out how to make people at keyboards look interesting. Remember Swordfish? Like, really trying hard to make people tapping on keyboards seem exciting and never managing it. No, they managed it once. Sneakers. Okay, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's probably the one exception, I guess. And the way they did it was they openly went, these guys are nerds. They didn't try and make them cool and sexy. Or not, you know, I mean, obviously some of the actors were a bit nice, but they didn't try and go, yeah, we're edgy cyberpunk, whoa, kind of mm, buzzing modems, yeah. They just yeah. went, no, these guys are hackers, weirdos and conspiracy theorists, but they're just really good. And they, oh, what was it they did? You know what they did, Luke? They gave them characters. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, because it's, you know how people say with Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, you know when he started to do comedy run and like Jingle All The Way is the classic example of this. Like, he is a massive, muscly Austrian lad. And they're like, but he's just a regular guy. He's just a regular dad. It's like, is he? Look at him. He doesn't look like a regular dad next to Phil Hartman. And that's what we're going to got here with Sandy Bullock. It's like, yeah, Sandy Bullock is great. And I love Sandy Bullock. But when she is tapping away at keys and she is saying words, you can see you having a blues clue what you're on about here. She is doing cybersecurity work from a beach on a laptop in 1995. Exactly. That laptop would last about a minute on the beach before it exploded. There's also no way in hell she can see. For all that glare, she's definitely not seeing anything on that screen. I had a, ga- I had a Game Boy, I know. Yeah, but this came out. It had an estimated budget of $22 million. It had a release date originally of July 28th, 1995. Well, it did make back its budget. It made 50.7 million in domestic box office and then an overall gross of 110 million worldwide with Which an additional 20 odd million from, from rentals in the US. That's pretty good. Like, that's actually really solid. I think we mentioned this last week as well. Like, you know, I'm ragging on the net a little bit here. And actually, I, we don't rag on it quite as much as Dave and Rick do. But I think there's, there is a certain 90s charm to it. It is a bit on the dull side but it has got wonderful 90s charm like watching it in hindsight uh, and watching it sort of like you know with 2022 eyes there is something quite charming about its 90sness yeah and there's nothing original about the movie there's nothing original about the plot alfred hitchcock has done the kind of whole innocent person framed kind of like you know for framed for a crime they didn't commit oh wait that's kind of the fugitive or the a-team or i don't know pick any other bunch of things if you don't think it particularly applies to hitchcock 
I mean, Rick picks out the Pelican brief. Yeah, exactly. But it, I mean, Bullock is compelling. And I think that she could have been in a great movie about being a wrongly accused person. I think it was just a mistake to try and make her a 1995 hacker who, for some reason, collects viruses on a floppy disk for a mate. And it is that, you know, Rick makes this point here where it's like, this isn't how viruses act. That's not what a computer virus does. Like, it makes screens melt. Um, I was watching a show recently where there's a kind of a hacking group. And as soon as I knew it was going into cyber criminal stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, I need to just switch my brain off and throw it over there. And lo and behold, their systems got compromised. And this was made in 2021 going on 2022 a wireframe laughing skull appeared on the screen and I'm like, get the f*** out of here. I mean, we're in a period of time now where Hollywood haven't quite worked out what video call glitches look like. And there are some movies that do them quite well. Unfriended did them actually pretty well. But there are most, most Hollywood video call movies or movies that feature video calls haven't quite worked out what video glitch, what video call glitches look like. But in the review of it, as you said, Rick says it's a tepid version of the Pelican Brief with computers. And Dave concludes, it's just a bit too boring. 50%. Woof. Oh, that's not good at all, is it? I suppose we should talk about some games instead. So we'll head back to our cracking blokes and see what they've produced. Right, we've stopped the crackers and we've been recording their games playing throughout the show. They have selected the three best moves that they liked. And now Derek and I are going to talk you through them, starting off with Lewis. Now, Lewis is playing Bake here. What's he doing, Derek? That's right. Here you see that Louis has discovered Bake's three-hit flying kick combo. Fantastic. Called the Hunting Walk. Next up, we have Jack. That's right. Here you see Louis discovered Jack's Timber Smasher and then finishes off with double-fisted clout to the ground. That's fantastic. She tries to stop him, but he doesn't want anything to do with it. Okay, finally, he's playing as with, Nina. With Nina, now you want to see, like, the school school scrap slaps on the ground. Fantastic <laughs> slapping face action there. <laughs> now we're going to move on to Saul's three moves, starting off with one on Lei. Derek. Here you see Lei starts off as discovered. Sweep, and then straight up into a spinning sweep at the top. Right when he was in the middle air. Didn't even right give him time to land there. Excellent. Okay, so second move on Paul. Right, Paul, ten hit combo. Watch for it. Excellent. One, two, and... There you go. There. Ten that, hit I lost count. Okay, finally. <laughs> on lay again. Okay, lay again. Triple somersault kick. Three. Very <laughs> athletic there. And finishes off with a little That's smack right. to the groin there. Okay, yeah. some fine combinations and special moves from Saul. Finally, let's see how Mo did. And Mo starting off with King. Here you see Mo has discovered King's leg locks. Totally amazing. Twisting round. That's a lot of twists for one leg to handle, Derek. We can see it in the replay. Incredible. Ouch. Okay, Mo's second move is again with King. King, that's right. Five throw combo. I now, can't this believe is amazing. it. One, <laughs> two, <laughs> three, four, and spinning around. Five. That is unbelievable. <laughs> and he's still got one to go after this. This is his final special move, again with King. That's right. It's called the surfboard. You have to see it to believe it. Leg lock, picks the arms, straight up, surfboard. Ooh, Ooh. So why do they call that a surfboard, Derek? Well, he looks like he's surfing, but upside down. Maybe, maybe riding the crest of a rave. All right, fair enough. I'm sure there are people who surfboard upside down. Right, okay, right, we are just in agreement here. Mo has got the best one, right? Like, Mo has absolutely nailed this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not even just because it's um, it's it's an all-king special. 
But we'll, we'll get to that because they've basically finished their finding. They've, they've finished their playthrough. They've reviewed the footage. And now Derek's going to talk us through it. He goes to Louis first. And it's a combo from Beck. And it's a three kick blind combo. That is quite tasty. Um, he uses Jack's timber smasher and a double fish did clout to the ground. Kind of an axe handle blow, if you will. And lastly, a ground and pound slap attack from Nina. They're all solid moves. She does a Luthez press like a Steve Austin. It's a very gangly Luthez press, but yes, it is. Uh, Souls first is from Lay. It starts as a low sweep and leads into a jumping roundhouse kick that catches the midair. That looks really badass. Uh, second is from Paul, he of the tall hair. It's a 10 hit combo that I'm fairly certain I managed to master back in the day eventually but also on Lee it's a series of backflip kicks followed by a double foot stomp the double foot stomp is very silly but it's effective here but you're right it is an all king special when we come to Mo King's got the leg lock he has got the surfboard stretch but most impressively it's the five throw combo that we actually saw in last week's episode this bit of footage and it's so cool. It's rad, man. Like, as a as a wrestling fan as well, you know, King is a wrestling character. It's just cool wrestling combo moves. I don't have many Funko Pops, but I do have a few. And of those, a few of them are wrestlers. I've got the Million Dollar Man and IRS as a double pack. I've got Mick Foley and at least one of his guises. But I do also have King from Tekken. And that sits with the wrestlers. I also love as well because... You know, this this happens a lot in day-to-day life when people who don't watch wrestling get given wrestling move names. And one of, we get one of those here, the surfboard stretch. To you and I, we're like, oh yes, yeah, what Jushin Thunder Liger does. He made that popular. And I've and I've I've watched Jushin Thunder Liger do that. Like I've watched Jushin Thunder Liger play the hits in so many matches. And that's what you used to book Liger for, was to come to a show and play the hits. And one of those hits was the surfboard stretch. And every time he would do it polite applause from the crowd because they're like got to see like do the surfboard stretch so to you and i completely normal to dom and derek they're like why is it called a surfboard stretch and derek's like it i guess it looks like he's surfing upside down i mean he doesn't but that's the best they can come up with why is it called the surfboard stretch because he called it the surfboard stretch and english is not his first language (laughs) move on move on (laughs) but what will Games Master's final call on this be? Over to you, Games Master. For his ability to find the most complex, the most stomach-churning, the most humiliating spectrum of moves, including King's sensational five-throw combo, the joystick must surely go to the one and only magnificent Mo. Incredible. Well, it's Mo, isn't it? Of course it's Mo. Of course it's, it's Mo. Mo. It's Magnificent Mo. I'd have chosen Mo. You'd have chosen Mo. Any one of our listeners would probably have chosen Mo, unless one of them wants to be contrary. I know who you are. But Louis says the main man won. Sol is lost for words. Yeah, Sol's really lost for words, isn't he? He proper stumbles and <laughs> Tom's goes, come on, I know you've got it in you. You can get it out. And the eventual excuse is, it was his lucky day. I like Louis's i attempted the surfboard stretch like i just couldn't quite do it like he is just he was just better at doing it than i was i couldn't master it but mo mo doesn't think it was luck it was the magic goggles luke yeah of course it was that of course it was the magic goggles but there can only be one and that one is mo he waves his joystick about then reaches out to shake the hand of louis in one of the most awkward moments of the episode because louis does not notice and mo is just left hanging there for a way too awkward amount of time it is a long old time isn't it do we um 
do we think that Mo read about King stuff in the Japanese magazine? Because he was the one that went and bought that. He was the one that got it translated. And then he didn't tell his mate that he had found that. And he was keeping that all to himself. Oh, I reckon there's a chance. Or even if he didn't get that bit translated, that's the thing. You wouldn't necessarily know what the move was, but chances are they'd have put directions and buttons as kind of graphics rather than actual words or ca- or kanji symbols or similar. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think Mo's Mo's trip to the store was probably his you know his key to success here. That was his golden ticket. Oh, he's just that good. And to be honest, that's not beyond the realm of possibility because he did seem to be the better player. By a country mile. By a way, absolutely, yeah. Well, well earned. And that is the final piece of action from today's show because we have to go now. Just remember, life is like a pair of ski pants. If you've got a fantastic body, it's terrific. If not, then you can't hide the saggy bits. Bye-bye. Uh, this, I don't know if this is now my new favourite form of the outro because I used to really like the different styles of tea in uh, Series 1 what was on the menu with Auntie Mauricia in series two. Dex gave up on it halfway through series three. But I think for me, this is, I love the life is like blank punchline. Mm, Absolutely. I'm no, I'm with you on that one. I think this is really good. This is a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I, I'm enjoying the constant pant comparisons. Will I still like them 10 episodes in? We'll find out. We'll find out. Next week's one is particularly good. But before we get to that, that is episode two of series five. Ash, what did you make of it? I had a lot of fun with this episode. Everything just clicked into place. The Tekken challenge was fun. The news was fun. The kind of feature was fun. We got to find out about the cool shopping arcade up in North London. The reviews were cool. I dug the review of the net. I appreciate them broadening the horizons because also, guess what? It makes our job a little easier because it's making us more aware of other things that were going on at the time of broadcast. I thought the Tekken Challenge was exceptionally well done and it was nice to have it be subjective rather than just kind of a, well, you were the quickest time. It makes the dynamic more interesting. The Alpine Racer Challenge was also a lot of fun. The reviews were fun. It was just a good episode overall. I don't think it was exceptional, but it was solid. It's a show that knows its format, and I've already slipped into it like a comfortable pair of pants, and I'm feeling quite happy here. That's exactly what I was going to say as well. Like This is almost like base level of what you need to have from a Games Master episode. Two really good challenges, or at the very least, two fun challenges to watch, because Alpine Racer, the gimmick of it was very, very fun, and actually the banter between Jadine and Dominic was really great as well. You also had expertise game playing in there with the Game Crackers. It's the complete opposite of the Baby Rom thing. I think you hit the nail on the head last week. And you were like, put that in episode one and any of its detractors will not tune in for the rest of the series and we won't have to hear from them again. So when you tune in for episode two, you get nothing but great. And you're right, like it's nothing exceptional in the episode. Like I don't think it's a 90 a center above episode because there's nothing groundbreaking in it, but it is a really, really fun episode of the show. Yeah, it it's just solid. I just had a good time with this. And spoiler for next week's episode, I also had a good time with that. Same here. I'm I'm gonna jump straight to percentages on this one. Yeah. I'm just feeling a comfortable DeLorean. I had the exact same thing. I literally have DeLorean written down. This is a peak classic DeLorean episode of Games Master. It's above a 75. It's definitely above a 74. I saw you on the WrestleTalk Raw review the other day. <laughs> Just stealing our material wholesaler and taking it to your other lover. 
But no, this is definitely a good 88. It's not what I would call essential Games Master, but it's certainly any one of a cache of episodes you could just watch and have a good time with. Yeah, 100%. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. Or if you want a bit of interaction in real time, you want to chat with us, you want to chat with other listeners, other fans of games and pop culture in general, you can join our Discord We've got a venting and motivation area for those that need a bit of a lift up or a bit of a space to vent, which is a lovely thing to have. And then there's the abyss. Do not go in the abyss. Abandon all hope who enter there. It's also a great place to watch Games Master. We are doing weekly watch-longs. I say we. Um, Matthew Boo, one of our moderators, is hosting weekly watch-along events, not just for Patreons, but also the free feed as well. So if you go there, you'll watch whatever episode is coming up for the free feed and whatever episode is coming up for Patriots. It's not exclusive to anyone. It's open to absolutely every single person who goes into our Discord. It's a really fun place to do. I actually joined in for the watch along of episode one on Sunday while I was making dinner. And it's a really good way to watch an episode just before the podcast comes out. It's a great way to spend a Sunday evening. So shout out to our wonderful Discord community because they're tremendous people. And you can find details of those watch-alongs on the Discord itself, and we're also working on a way to have them posted on Twitter as well, but generally from 6pm on Sundays on our Discord. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free, and access to UCP Extra, which is this format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s. And a shout out to our £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, Simon, Sean, Retro Fund for Everyone, Reese, Paul, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Mark A, Link, Kevin, Jamie Smith, Harriet Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brantz, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Cliff Foster, Chrissy Two Sticks, Andrew Cummings, and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time for episode three. Take care, everyone. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a 
free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.